welcome to our eighth episode of Sports Stars Magazine's podcast, No One Go, an Ask the Expert show designed to be an information resource for high school athletes done in partnership with Golden State Orthopedic and Spine. My name is Chase Bryson, the managing editor of Sports Stars. In each episode, we welcome a new professional for a conversation that we hope will help inform the athletes, coaches, and families who listen. We'll be bringing on physicians, trainers, coaches, and athletes as the series grows. And if you have a question or a topic you'd like to hear discussed, or a question specifically that you'd like answered, make sure to listen at the end of the show for various options on how to make that happen. Today we're being joined by Dr. Murley Morthy. Dr. Morthy is an orthopedic surgeon at Golden State Orthopedic and Spine. He grew up in the East Bay and attended Northgate High in Walnut Creek before going on to earn his medical degree at the USC Keck School of Medicine. After completing his residency at the USC Department of Orthopedic Surgery, Dr. Morthy continued his training by taking an orthopedic fellowship at the Harbor UCLA Balanced Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Center. That's where our specialty lies and where we'll spend a good amount of time during today's discussion. Welcome to the show, doctor. Well, thank you very much for having me, Chase. Uh, so before we jump right into the topics that we're going to talk about today, uh, we like to start each of our inter- interviews by asking our first-time guests kind of the same question, and that's what exactly led to your passion for sports medicine? Well, uh, I was an uh, athlete myself, or figured myself as an athlete <laughs> in high school at least, uh, trying to play everything. I loved it all. Uh, anything with a ball, a racket, uh, kicking, shooting, hitting, it was, uh, it was all fair game to me. So with that came uh, several injuries along the way that I had to work through and sort of sparked my interest in kind of learning more about uh, what's going on and how to manage these things. Uh, because it would seem like I would always be seeing the doctor and a lot of the stuff was small and I just wanted to know how to handle the small stuff so I didn't have to keep bother going to the doctor. So that got me started reading more about it. And as I went to college, uh, found an aptitude for going into medicine and took it from there. All right. So today we're going to chat about a number of foot and lower extremity injuries that you tend to see. Um, This is sort of a part two of a conversation we had with your colleague, uh, Dr. Abidi, about sprained ankles, um, which uh, listeners can find in episode five. Um, So we spent a lot of time uh, on common sprains with Dr. Abidi, but not a great deal on high ankle sprains. So I thought we'd start there. Um, how exactly is a high ankle sprain different than a common one? Let's start with that. Well, with the standard ankle sprain, the foot rolls to the inward a- aspect and the outer ankle goes outward. Um, so that's the typical, what we call inversion sprain. Um, we see it in all kinds of athletes. It's the most common orthopedic injury around. Um, Many times people don't even need to see a doctor about it. It tends to get better relatively quickly, but no hesita- there's certainly no hesitation in going to see someone because many times it hurts like crazy and you want to make sure that you didn't do anything serious. Uh, the high ankle sprain is a little bit different. In this case, the foot rotates outward and the inner ankle rotates further inward. Um, So normally our fibula bone, the outer bone of an ankle is blocking that motion. So it takes a little bit more energy to sprain the ligaments this way. Um, There can be more pain on the inner aspect of the ankle as well as uh, the ligaments that bind the tibia and fibula together, the two bones around your leg, 
those get strained. And that, that's why we call it a high ankle sprain because a lot of the pain can be above the level of the ankle. Whereas a low ankle sprain, typically the pain is below the level of the fibula, that outer bone. So the mechanisms are different and there can be a higher incidence of cartilage damage inside the ankle with these things. Um, generally with these, we know they're gonna take a little bit longer to resolve. Um, instead of maybe three weeks to get back on the field after, field after a bad ankle sprain, uh, the high ankle sprain can take six to eight weeks. And it's not that unusual. Um, and the latest research now is we're trying to sort out if maybe early intervention uh, surgically may be warranted to try and get people on the field quicker if they're a high level athlete. So you explain it as rolling one way or rolling the other way is kind of the big difference. In the heat of competition, you might not know which way it rolled. Is there a way that you, um, that an athlete can tell if they've suffered a high ankle sprain as opposed to a, a standard one, or does it usually have to be determined by a physician? Oh, that's a good question. Um, having pain above the level of the ankle uh, can uh, be a sign that you've had a high ankle sprain rather than a low ankle sprain. Um, you're right. A lot of times stuff is so quick. And many times I have kids who will tell me, well, I think it rolled this way, but then it may have rolled the other way later at the, at the <laughs> next second. Uh, because these things happen so quickly, they, people are in an unstable position as it is and off balance as these, these injuries happen. So they don't always know uh, which way the ankle rolled. But yeah, having the tenderness and the pain um, above the level of the fibula or on the bones of the tibia and fibula uh, lead us to concern that there's something else going on. You mentioned that the recovery is longer. Is the treatment for it any different? Yeah. Um, many times with a low ankle sprain, um, simply having a lace-up ankle brace initially or a cam walker boot, one of those big uh, black moon boots, I like to call them, um, is, is a uh, standard treatment and uh, lasts about three weeks or so. But with the uh, high ankle sprain, uh, generally you're putting people into one of those higher boots. Uh, so there's more control of the ankle and more offloading of the ankle joint, as well as those ligaments between the tibia and the fibula. Um, and we're asking people to wear them longer to allow for the swelling to go down around those ligaments. Uh, because when they start to walk without the boot, those ligaments between the tibia and fibula are going to take up more strain than the typical low ankle sprain. Is there anything else on high ankle sprains that, that, uh, that you think we, we should touch on? Uh, many times, too, the pain can be on the inner aspect of the ankle rather than the outer aspect. And that could signal what's called a deltoid ligament tear. On the inner aspect, it's called the deltoid ligament. On the outer aspect, it's called the anterior talofibular and calcaneofibular ligaments. Um, when the del that deltoid ligament is usually quite robust and sturdy. So it, to tear that, it takes a higher amount of energy um, and can take a lot longer to heal as well. So that's another sign that maybe it's not a typical low ankle sprain is when the inner aspect of the ankle uh, continues to hurt for a longer period of time. When we MRI uh, people with high ankle sprains on occasion, we do see more incidence of cartilage damage. That's where that's the covering of the bones in the joint. Um, 
So you see a little bit higher incidence of that. You also see a higher incidence of bone, what's called bone bruising, where the bones themselves uh, look like they're swollen, uh, the way the MRI shadows uh, show up. Um, we call it bone edema. And uh, that can lead to a longer course of pain, uh, which may just take even up to three months to go away completely. Now, that doesn't mean you can't rehab and get back to play with that pain, but it can slow people down in their rehabilitation course. So generally, high ankle sprains are going to take longer to get back from. Uh, the typical uh, athlete that gets, every, anyone can have a high ankle sprain from anything. I have a, a situation today where someone was in a car accident and we can't find any fractures. It, he doesn't know the mechanism of it. But uh, based on the x-rays, we see the, some separation between the tibia and the fibula. But it's not bad, just a little bit. And uh, the inner aspect of the ankle may be a little bit widened on the x-ray. The bones of the inner aspect of the ankle, the talus and the medial malleolus of the tibia are a little bit separated, which makes me think he's torn his deltoid ligament and probably torn the ligaments between the fibula and the tibia, the syndesmosis ligaments, which are involved in a high ankle sprain. And this may be a good one to have surgery on where we put screws or uh, suture devices between the tibia and fibula to hold those ligaments closer together while they heal up so they can heal up in an appropriate position. So it's a lot of new advances even, in, as I was saying earlier, about a new research coming out about doing that in even milder high ankle sprains to try and get somebody back on the field quicker. Uh, so a running back being tackled from behind or an offensive lineman blocking and having someone fall into the back of their ankle is a typical mechanism uh, for the high ankle sprain. And those are tough positions to get back to when uh, you can't push off and torque right. uh, that ankle. So some early stabilization can help get those ligaments to heal up quicker and uh, get people back on the field quicker. You mentioned football. Are there other sports where it seems to be... Um more common than others? Well, you can see it a lot in uh, uh, soccer and lacrosse as well. Um, it tends to happen in those situations, particularly when people are falling on uh, someone's leg yeah. uh, from, a, from more from the side, from the outer aspect of the ankle or from the back of the ankle while the player is moving forward uh, and someone falls on them from behind. Now I was going to move to an injury that we don't see as much in high school athletes, even though the threat still exists. And that's, that's an Achilles tendon tear. What, what exactly happens when you experience a tear and, and can there be varying degrees of it? Uh, yeah. I mean, there, there are various things that can happen to the Achilles tendon. The most dramatic of them being a rupture. People who are in the Bay area are familiar with uh, the Golden State Warriors. They think back to Kevin Durant's uh, yep. Achilles injury. Um, which we saw live on TV versus Clay Thompson's Achilles, where he was uh, just practicing and rehabbing from his ACL injury and suffered an Achilles rupture. Um, I like uh, on, on YouTube, I send patients to look up David Beckham's Achilles injury because it's sort of a classic one in the sense of the feeling of getting kicked from behind is a common theme with the Achilles rupture, very dramatic. And uh, you know, soccer players, they like to dive with any little touch. So you see David Beckham dribbling the ball with no one around him. And there's, you see the foot go upward, which we call dorsiflexion. 
as he was trying to push forward with his with his calf muscle. And immediately he just stops, can't bear weight on his foot and flops to the ground, assuming somebody kicked him in the back of his ankle and he turns around and he's shocked. There's no one behind him. I can't, there's no one. Uh, he's about to complain to the ref, like hey, there's no one there. And then he just stands up and limps off. He knows he's, he's done something bad. Um, so it's a non-contact injury. It's a very dramatic non-contact injury. I also tell people to look at uh, Kobe Bryant's Achilles uh, tear from about, I think it was five, six years ago. Uh, he was driving by a rookie, Harrison Barnes, and Barnes got called for a foul. And I remember sitting, watching this game and yelling at the TV, like, that's a non-contact injury. I saw that. That's an Achilles tear. <laughs> they're, they're picking on the rookie and making uh, Kobe Bryant take free throws with a torn Achilles tendon. <laughs> but um, so those are the kind of classic non-contact mechanism. That's a classic non-contact mechanism. And it's very dramatic because you can't get back to playing. It's not something like, a, oh, I sprained my ankle. I'm going to get back out there. Um, it's generally pretty obvious to people that something is wrong. Uh, they felt a pop. Some people say like, oh man, I thought I got shot. It was so sudden. Hmm. Um, so the two ends of the, or the, the rupture can occur at various sites along the Achilles tendon. It could occur where the muscle attaches to the tendon. That's unusual. It usually occurs right in the mid substance of the tendon itself. Uh, again, tendon, or, or just to educate people, tendon is something that connects the muscle to the bone. So the Achilles tendon is connecting the calf muscles to the heel bone. And in the more elderly population uh, where people have had some kind of tendonitis at the insertion of the tendon to the heel, uh, we see occasionally people rupturing it right off of the heel bone. Generally, we don't see it until, uh, except for uh, in the younger population, except for the high-end athletes. Um, I've had a couple of 16 year olds over the years who have had Achilles ruptures. It's pretty unusual. And the high level athletes is usually in the uh, mid 20s and early 30s. And then there are the weekend warrior types uh, like myself <laughs> uh, who are uh, more up in the 40s and 50s uh, who have it. And then we also have our elderly population where it can be something as simple as stumbling a little bit awkwardly off a curb and they rupture their Achilles. The other interesting thing about it, Chase, is sometimes after a few days, it doesn't hurt very bad. Hmm. And so, especially in the older population, I've had it where people won't come in for several weeks because, oh, quote unquote, I must have sprained it. And they sort of limp on it. It's swollen. It's black and blue. It hurts a little bit, but they're able to walk through it. Um, and they think, oh, everything must be okay. But Finally, some finally they decide to drag themselves in because, hey, I just can't get rid of this limp. And it, it goes to the importance of the Achilles tendon for just basic functions. Um, it's probably the most important tendon in the body when it comes to walking. That Achilles is firing with every step with just a simple stride. So when I step forward with my right foot and then I'm rolling over my right foot, that Achilles tendon is firing to prevent me from falling on my face. <laughs> when people with a chronic Achilles uh, step forward, they have an unusual gait to them where they almost have to buckle their knee to keep their center of gravity balanced because their Achilles isn't there to help them uh, stride over their right foot if their right Achilles was torn. 
So it's a very interesting problem uh, to a very important tendon uh, that we see. And generally, we're looking at repair as the primary treatment, particularly for the athlete. Um, there are non-operative treatments that are of value, certainly. Uh, they, it's important to have an early diagnosis if we are going to decide on non-operative treatment. So uh, we might cast for a few weeks with the toes pointed down and the foot pointed down uh, to allow the tendon to be at a proper length when it starts to heal. And then subsequently put people into a boot and start a uh, gradual increase of physical therapy and slowly stretch. I like to wait on the stretching for about four to six weeks, uh, but it's not a major stretch early on because we want that tendon to heal tight. And that's, so, that's also why with the athlete where they need that power, uh, we want them to heal in a good tight position. So we generally do surgery on the athlete. And the surgery, is it like other, other tendon repairs? Is it a graft? No, this is, so there's a lot of different types of uh, injuries with tendons and ligaments. They have very similar uh, collagen makeups many times, but when we hear about someone, let's say, tearing their ACL, the problem there is uh, that's a ligament inside the knee where there's joint fluid. So that joint fluid is washing away all the healing factors, and that's generally why uh, specialized treatments with grafts are needed and the grafts plug into the bone. With a primary Achilles repair, we generally can just get the two ends together mm. uh, with suture uh, and uh, subsequent mobilization for a limited period of time, followed by rehabilitation. And we're allowing those sutures to keep things together while rehabilitation progresses. And the tendon undergoes changes as time goes along. That's why initially people are feeling pretty good at around six to 10 weeks, but it's also the most dangerous time. And there's some risk of re-rupture there because they're feeling pretty good and they wanna get back quickly, but the body is still reorganizing that scar tissue into proper tendon tissue. So you have to be a little bit careful around that time that you don't go too hard, uh, uh, too fast. So, um, as you know, it took a long time for Clay Thompson, as well as Kevin Durant, to get back from their Achilles injuries because it's a process. Uh, there's a lot of atrophy to the muscles that go on. Again, that Achilles is so important to our functioning, even simple walking, never mind jumping and trying to dunk a basketball. So there's a lot of rehabilitation that needs to go on before someone gets back on the field after an Achilles rupture. Uh, so the surgery is actually relatively straightforward. Um, there are different techniques to it. There's a minimally invasive technique, which I utilize, uh, utilizing special jigs and sutures uh, so that just a small incision is needed to tie everything together. Uh, the traditional method is making a longer incision, visualizing both ends of the tendon clearly, uh, and then putting uh, sutures on either end and tying it all together. Um, and then the rehab starts. The rehab is a tough part for a lot of people because these are active people uh, who want to get back on the field quickly. And as I mentioned, you don't want to go uh, too hard too soon. Uh, so it does take time to get back on the field. And generally I'm counseling people, it's gonna be about nine months. Um, recently, for those who follow uh, football and the LA Rams, 
their star running back hadn't had the Achilles injured, I think it was early on in the season, maybe even preseason, and was able to come back during the end of the season and playoffs to uh, lead them to a Super Bowl victory. That's unusual. That's more the exception than the norm, but it can be done. The Know and Go podcast is presented by Golden State Orthopedics and Spine, formerly Muir Ortho, Webster Orthopedics, and Ortho Norcat. Whether you are a little leaguer, pro athlete, or a world-class grandparent, you can get expert care for sports and other injuries, painful joints, and much more with the compassionate doctors at Golden State Ortho. Visit them online today at goldenstateortho.com. Can there be warning signs that one's Achilles is under stress and maybe in danger of a tear or rupture? And what sort of pain would that feel like? Oh, that's a great question. Um, there is something called Achilles tendonitis, uh, where people have inflammation along the tendon sheath and there can be some swelling in the region. Uh, this tends to be an overuse, in, uh, overuse problem. So I'll see it in uh, high level gymnasts, uh, soccer players occasionally, basketball players uh, who do a lot of jumping. Um, so this is something that comes on gradually. And what people will feel is just tenderness along the Achilles tendon at various aspects. Uh, in the younger patients, it usually doesn't portend a Achilles rupture. That's very unusual. I do see it occasionally with my older population when the uh, pain is around the heel attachment, mm. where we might find that there's on an MRI, there's a lot of degeneration and partial tearing. Uh, those make me nervous for potential uh, rupture if they just had a little misstep. But uh, that is one of the crazy things about Achilles ruptures is sometimes they happen in, and actually most of the time uh, when I've interviewed patients after the injury, I ask them, hey, did you ever have any pain or problems around your Achilles tendon? And 95% of the time, it's the answer is no. Huh. All right. Well, I got one more question here about, um, about another injury that we, we tend to hear a lot about when, uh, when fantasy football season starts and we're, we're keeping an eye on that injury wire. But um, what can you tell us about turf toe and, and what happens there? Yeah, turf toe is a tricky problem. And it's not just uh, football. We see a lot in lacrosse and soccer as well. Um, or any, any, actually pretty much any activity where people have to get up on their toes to sprint and cut. It can even be seen in tennis, although it's much less uh, common there. But basically what happens is uh, the injury generally occurs when someone's up on their toes or up on their big toe. And that big toe takes a lot of stress in day-to-day -day athletic activities. So it can be in a vulnerable position and someone gets torqued from behind or there's just an unexpected motion. And that uh, big toe is really driven upward as someone standing on their toe. So the bottom of the toe has ligaments that get strained and that's basically what turf toe is. Now there's a various spectrum of injury. Um, you know, they have the standard grades, et cetera. But basically what we're looking for is, is there, uh, how much pain is there on the bottom of the toe? How much swelling, how much bruising when we first see somebody? MRI can be helpful in assessing what the prognosis is, but isn't always necessary. X-ray is a good idea to check for any fracture of small bones underneath the big toe called sesamoid bones. Um, 
that can certainly lead to a longer term problem. Um, we're also looking at the position of the sesamoid bones to see if they've moved from a typical position that might suggest a complete tear of the ligaments binding those bones to the toe, uh, which might even necessitate surgery. And those are the situations generally when we're thinking about surgery on this to repair those ligaments. So basically what ha what's happened with a turf toe is there's strain to the ligaments underneath the big toe. So how do we treat it? <laughs> That's tough because every athletic movement involves jump, getting up on that toe to push off. So it can be a pesky problem. Um, initially, I, I'm very aggressive about putting people into a boot to really limit motion and get that in, initial inflammation down for at least two to three weeks uh, and then reassessing. Um, when we first get people back into shoes, I like to have a carbon fiber plate designed to go underneath the insert of the shoe to stiffen up the shoe uh, so that there is less pressure put on to the ligaments underneath the big toe when someone is trying to run. Rehabilitation can be important involving uh, working on the small muscles of the big toe and various stretches uh, to avoid uh, the ligament getting too lax or too, or, uh, too tight either way. Um, but this is generally an eight-week injury at times to get back to full play and without having to have any inserts. It very much varies. Um, now in the situation where someone has had a full rupture of those ligaments and we see that the sesamoid bones are displacing, uh, we have to do a very complicated surgery involving multiple incisions, depending on which ligaments are torn underneath the toe, uh, to get everything repaired. And that's a season ending injury, obviously, if we're looking at surgery. That's kind of the, uh, the extent of my, uh, my injury questions for today. We do like to to finish uh, each episode with uh, with a similar question to, to first-time guests, and that's, what's your favorite piece of advice that you like to give to student-athletes to, to help keep them from becoming one of your patients? Well, the tricky part is uh, when you are young, you can get away with a lot of things. <laughs> but the important thing to understand is what, what is it that you're trying to achieve? If you're trying, many times... Uh, the other day, I was just at Bishop O'Dowd, where I'm the team doctor, high school in Oakland, and I was talking to several students about their junior year and what their goals were as we're doing pre-participation uh, pre physicals. And every single time when someone says they're ready to take that next step, they're training a lot harder, they're, they're going to uh, you know, work on showing up nicely for a college scholarship for scouts nutrition is not a priority and it's tricky because you you have coaches who are they're telling you what to do in the weight room they're telling you what to do on the field they're telling you the drills to run so that you can be faster stronger quicker cuts um, but you're putting your body through a lot more stress and kids it's hard to watch your diet and i'm not talking about you know, avoiding snacks and ice cream and fun stuff like that. I'm just talking about getting enough protein, getting enough carbohydrates, getting enough hydration. We just don't, when I was 17, that was the furthest thing from my mind. And so in this day and age, as kids are trying to do a lot, a lot sooner in their yeah. life compared to when I was growing up, 
Uh, nutrition a lot of times gets overlooked and I think it, it leads to a lot of problems that I see in the office like stress injuries um, because it's just not something that they think about on a day-to-day -day basis um, because it's not fun and there's no, <laughs> no, no getting around that. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun to get out and train. It's fun to hit the weight room, but it's just not fun to you know, think about what I'm eating and am I eating good enough protein for the day? Am I eating, getting enough carbs for the day? So it's something to look into as you are thinking about taking that next level jump where you're going to increase your training activities so that you can be even better on the field. Um, uh, don't overlook that uh, because the reality is there's a lot of kids who have the desire to be the best. Um, to be the next Simone Biles. But if you, you the next Simone Biles has to also think about so many different things to get to that Olympic level. Um, and one of them is nutrition and it gets overlooked time and time again. And then it, there's an injury that slows you down from reaching your goals. Awesome. I, I think that will wrap this episode up. Uh, I want to thank you so much for joining us, uh, doctor. And, and hopefully we can do this again for another episode down the line. Great, Chase. Nice to meet you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. That brings this episode of No One Go to a close. We want to once again thank Dr. Morthy for being our guest. And a thank you to any of our listeners so far. No One Go is currently available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Stitcher. If you listen to us on any of those platforms, please rate and subscribe. We will know and go using Anchor. Visit the show's home at Anchor by visiting anchor.fm slash no, K-N-O-W, go pod. The site will be a primary hub for our listener participation with this show. That's where you can leave us a voice message, suggest a topic, or ask a specific question that you'd like an expert to answer. Don't want to jump right to a voice message? You can also email me at editor at sportsstarsmag.com or tweet us at at sportsstarsmag or at Sports Stars Pods. Please be sure to follow both accounts for all of our latest guest announcements and updates. Each of our episodes also get their own dedicated page on Sports Stars Magazine's web home, sportsstarsmag.com. You can stream the episode there or find links to the various other platforms. That's also where you can find episodes of our other podcasts, the Oral History Style Sports Stories, and our football-specific Seven Friday Night. Our cover art was designed by myself using a photo taken by James K. Leash. Our theme music was produced by Dustin Phillips, who performs in multiple Northern California bands. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with a new episode soon.